Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 27 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. This is one episode after our 26th episode, which marked our six-month point, and we have an excellent, excellent episode for you today. Jim, why don't you sell the hell out of it? Well, let me tell you what got going on today, folks. First of all, as you heard from our background music, which hopefully was short enough to not trigger any copyright concerns, um, earlier in the week, DMX did die. Um, I will, I will say DMX, you can tell on social media, obviously had a huge following, uh, definitely was an artist that uh, touched many people. Um, my experience with DMX music mostly came in the song we just heard, I'm going to give it to you, coming on at probably every other halftime in eighth grade basketball games. And of course, that same song is responsible for, I believe, it is responsible for the most attempted PRs in the gym. So definitely DMX touched many lives. I'm sure he'll be missed by as many fans and by his family. So our, our hearts go out to them. Um, and uh, hopefully he's resting in peace. But uh, yeah, DMX, definitely one of the most, one of the most iconic songs you've, uh, you've uh, ever heard. Joe, do you agree with that? Yeah, his, his voice is just so distinctive. Like his yeah. style and voice and delivery and everything is just unique. Yeah. Um, it's just a shame that he had to smoke so much crack and die. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, a reminder to all of us. If you know anybody with uh, drug problems or yourself, get help, get help, get help, get help. Um, and when you're going for those PRs at the gym, when you're going for that yes. that max out bench or whatever, definitely throw on some DMX. Throw some DMX and grab a spotter. Grab a spotter. Or the safety bars. Either one works. He also has a great Christmas song. Have you heard that? I, I you know, I'm going to make it a point to listen to some DMX this weekend. Um, I have heard more than just X going to give it to you, but I would be hard pressed to quote another song from him besides that. But I mean, it's like, if you, if you ever hear his voice, like, Oh, that's a DMX. Like, obviously yeah. no one, nobody sounds like DMX. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to, I'm going to look on YouTube this weekend and find some, find some of his uh, more classic hits. Yeah. And then when it gets close to the holidays, you got to listen to uh, Rudolph the red nosed reindeer by DMX. He has a version of it and it's, it's awesome. I'm going to check it out. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Joe, we have a lot to cover this episode, as you know. Uh, for what, one thing, for anybody listening, we are going to do, we're continuing with our with our two segments. We're going to have some social media shout outs a little bit later on in the episode. And we're also going to have a follow-up from last week. Last week, we had a our album of the week from Aretha Franklin, and we have the write-up for that one that we'll be sharing later on in the episode as well. But Joe, before we hit into those heavier topics, I wanted to revisit something that as a as a group our friends have discussed many times and i thought i want us to get to the bottom of this today i want us to finally settle the debate between the pen and the mechanical pencil what are we going to give as guidance to our viewers in terms of deciphering the appropriate time for mechanical pencil usage versus pen usage i would say that anytime you're picking the pen up and down a lot you should be using a pencil. Yeah. Like if you're writing numbers, like plus signs, like minus signs, like division signs, that's when you use a pencil. But if you're like writing, especially like cursive or something like that, and it's just continuous flow, then I would go with the pen in that case. What, what about you? What do you think? You know, this has been a, a tough one. Joe and I come from an era, a, a generation, if you will, that really was on the cusp of the pencil to mechanical pencil transition. Myself, I'm sure Joe as well, remembers countless number two pencil sharpening. And every time somebody told me, 
make sure it's a number two pencil. I thought the exact same thing everybody else thought. Nobody has a fucking pencil that's not a number two pencil. They don't fucking exist. Nobody has ever seen a pencil that wasn't number two. So all this work went into finding number two pencil. Let me tell you what number two pencil is. The pencil that you have in your hand is a fucking number two pencil. No other one ever exists. There was no number one. They missed a number. That I'm convinced of that. Now, let's not get carried away here. Because pencils in this day and age, in my opinion, pencils are no longer on the table. Get them out of here. Unless you're an artist or something, get them out of here. We're talking about pens versus mechanical pencils. The benefit of a, of a pencil, of course, is that you can erase it. But another benefit is that unlike pens, essentially every mechanical pencil writes the same in, in terms of how the ink leaves the tip. When you have a, a pen with, with, a, with a higher ink flow rate or something, you can get thicker lines or it'll bleed through a little bit differently or your, your, your hand will like somehow start dragging the ink as you're writing on it. Pencils are more uniform in that way. And uh, they also don't jump the way that a pen can just like stop working for a little bit and start working again. Uh, the, the graphite prevents that from happening. I, I'm a big believer in the mechanical pencil. I, I really am. And if it weren't for threat of forgery or fraud, I might always use a mechanical pencil. I find that they write smoother for me. I find that I have an easier time writing them or writing with them. And I don't have to worry about little random blobs of ink building up with certain letters that then again, my hand gets in and then I just, you know, end up turning my whole paper into a Rorschach test. So, okay. A couple follow-up questions. First of all, what's your opinion on the erasable pens? Do you remember those? The, that was uh, that was a complete, that was a, an absolutely complete uh, bullshit. They, they didn't, they, they never erased all. Nobody ever had a good experience with erasable pen. It was, it was complete bullshit. It was, they weren't, they weren't it was very long, were they? No, it was complete snake oil. It was complete snake oil. Uh, it was a fraud. Um, it was an attempt by Big Pen to take over some market from the mechanical pencil industry, and it, it completely failed. Nobody buys those anymore. Nobody buys them anymore. It, nothing, nothing erases better than graphite off the paper. And the idea of, a, of an erasable pen was just, was just complete propaganda. It never worked. It never, it, it never worked at all. So, um, and I, of course, I bought a few, you know, back in, what was it, sixth grade, maybe, when they were around for like six months. But it, <laughs> after that, it was, it, it was a dog shit technology, and it, it no longer with us. The market at work destroying the erasable pen industry. So this is a question I get a lot. What, what about the size, the size of the lead? Yeah, well, uh, per, yeah, per, per usual, it's all about thickness. And I would say that 0.7 is really... I think where you want to be. I, I, I'm a big believer in the 0.7. I think it's a good, it's, it's a good thickness. 0.5 is, is fine. Any, anything above or below that you're getting into weird, you know, niche territory. I would say stay away from that. Really, here's what you want to do. You want to, you want to put yourself in the following situation. When you're using a mechanical pencil, when you're buying a thickness, you want to ask yourself, where am I, what, what kind of ammunition do I have at my disposal? If you buy some random thickness, and you run out of lead, who's going to, who's going to, oh, a 0.28. Perfect. I keep that in my pocket. You're, you're, you're totally SOL. If you're carrying 0.5, if you're carrying 0.7, you're golden. Everybody, one person in, in the classroom or in the office will have additional 0 0.7, 0 0.5 lead for you to borrow. Um, which is also a benefit of the mechanical pencil. When it, when it, when a pen runs out of ink, it's done for. I mean, no one's, no one's actually buying these pen inserts. I mean, I suppose in some, 
you know, psychotic, you know, alternate reality. Someone's buying, you know, the pin thing to put inside. No one's doing that in the real world. You know, people in the, up in the ivory tower believe in that nonsense. I, I actually, I actually just got a pen like that off Amazon. No, 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 no. To, it's like it's a twenty dollars plastic one. But no, no, I, I'm saying nobody is nobody is, is replacing these. Out of oh like, no, no one's buying. You know, <laughs> yeah, no one's buying. Uh-uh. You know, no, no. So I know that is another benefit of the um, mechanical pencil. If you find so, that really fits your hand well, you can essentially use it forever. So. Yeah. So, so to recap what you're saying, you're saying that the uh, the point seven millimeter lead is equivalent to the nine millimeter um pistol round yes 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 it is it's the most ubiquitous and uh, common one that's out there yes absolutely perfect analogy perfect analogy um you know it's um it's 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 really it's what you want um it's the ak-47 if you will of the classroom and every there's always going to be ammunition for it so it's uh yeah I, I think I'm I'm going mechanical pencil you know day in and day out, I'm going mechanical pencil um I've been using one recently and this is probably I think 0.5 but um oh no this is 0.7 to my point and so I like I like I like using it so much but um yeah I, I like I like using uh using the mechanical pencil and again I think if you're in a position where you're not going to be faced with with fraud or anything like that I would say use it use the pencil use the pencil. Yeah. And what's this thing with Scantrons and, and like any type of machine that reads it, like can only read a number two pencil? Like, how is that possible? Why can't it read like a pen? Why can't it read yeah. like yeah. If Tesla can, if a Tesla can drive itself, how can a computer not detect what your answer is on a Scantron? I agree. I, I agree. I think it's a, uh, it's a number two. It's the uh, number two, big, big number two, if you will. Yeah. Big, big, big pencil. Big. It's big pencil. Um, like I said, nobody, again, this idea, number two, make sure it's number two. No one's ever seen another type of pencil. I mean, this is, this whole thing is ridiculous. It's, 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 it's completely ridiculous. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in the mechanical pencil and I, I'm glad to see more and more converts coming over to it, uh, as well. I will, let me just make a, a special mention, uh, which is of course the felt tip. Now I think the felt tip does have a place. The felt tip is really nice. If you're a professor in a classroom writing on a piece of paper that is being projected onto a onto a board behind you, I think that, or even onto some kind of projector of some sort, I think that the, the felt tip shows up the best in that kind of setting. Now that's a very niche market, very, very niche. But if you if you are in that market, consider getting a felt tip because it shows up nicely. It's not too big, so it, you know your paper looks like a, some kind of cartoon nonsense. It looks, you know, it's small enough to be able to write sentences out, but it's it's thick enough to show up well on the uh, on the projector, and it, and it and it looks nice. So it's like it's like uh, the bold feature, computer feature for writing. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. I right. like it. So that, and I I wanted to say that because you know I'm. I'm a big believer in having good office supplies at your disposal. I'm, I'm a big believer in graph paper. Anybody follows us on Twitter, you know, saw it today. I posted a little work that I did. Uh, you know, one of these uh, people that I follow asked a question about Martian escape velocity, did a little calculation for that. And I did it on, on, on the graph paper. I like using the graph paper. And, um, and I, I like using the mechanical pencil as well. So I did want to cover that today, John. I appreciate your feedback on that. I think uh, we are... We are in agreement. Um, 
Joe, I understand that you have some cool things from, from your inbox from this week. Yes. Yeah, it's let's, been a, a very active week for my inbox. Great. Let's dive on in. Um, well, the, fir- the first one from, the in- from Joe's inbox was our request for that DMX song. Yes. Yep. Or for, for us to, to pay homage to DMX, which we did. Yep. Yep. And the second one. Um, before we get to the second one. You were talking about your Twitter earlier. Yes. And I saw that we got some likes from Nassim Taleb on some of those posts. Yes, we did. You want to talk about that a little bit? It's always fun when uh, somebody who you enjoy reading and following uh, gives you any amount of attention on social media. And uh, it, was, uh, it was nice. Um, he, he posted a really, a really interesting story about a, a, a person who – um, essentially had to live their whole life um, kind of on, on the receiving end of an untruth. But uh, in order to protect somebody, the person maintained that untruth kind of throughout their whole life. And it was a really interesting story because, uh, and I think uh, the, the point that Nassim was getting at is that oftentimes we, we think of heroism as being these kind of grand elaborate moments. You know, we think of like a movie like the Avengers where, you know, it's the, the, the final battle and that's kind of the hero. But um, in, in real life, there's a different kind of hero, which is a, a person who, who lives every day in kind of a heroic uh, life. And it really it reminded me of the takeaway message from, from Viktor Frankl and his book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is there really is no definition of a good life. It's you have good days. You live every day trying to be a good person. That, that's how you accumulate a good life in much the same way. He uses the analogy of, of a chess game. There is no perfect chess move. It depends on the board, depends on the game. You know, every move presents itself its own challenges. And so I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, piece that Nassim posted today with that story and I think had a good message. I think especially now where there's a lot of big events happening and I think it's important to focus and remember that however long and however elaborate a, a, a life or a moment or a theme feels, we're all living it one day at a time. And that's how we need to approach these things one day at a time. That's great. Um, you were talking about the heroic quality of it earlier. Right. What would, what would that what would be classified as that heroic yeah. quality? You know, in, in, in this case, it was a, it was a pretty standard, uh, you know, somebody in a position of strength looking out for somebody that was not in a position of strength. I think it involved a, a um, it somehow involved protecting either a child or, or somebody, um, somebody related to that, maybe the, the, the mother who was pregnant or something like that. It was basically, you know, somebody, I'm going to butcher the, the, the story, but it was something to the effect of, um, a, a, a person disguised as a woman was, I'm, I'm sorry, rather a, a person disguised as a man was accused of getting somebody else pregnant, which of course didn't happen. But in order to protect either the child or the mother um, kind of kept with the lie. So, but it was the, the bigger kind of definition would just be somebody in a, in a position of, of strength or ability looking out for somebody else. Um, that, that, that's a quality that Nassim gives a lot of credit in his work. Oftentimes, you know, he describes heroism and and things that he finds virtuous as um, the the strong looking out for the weak, that that, that's a common theme in in Nassim's work. And in this story, it involved a person doing that, not just for a a day or for a moment, but 
throughout that person's entire life. So it was the idea of, you know, looking at a lifelong commitment versus a grand moment where some kind of profit was resolved. So I know, I know uh, Nassim talks a lot about economics. Um, does he go into ethics a lot as well? I, I haven't read yeah. any of his work yet. I just, I've just followed him on social media. Yes. In fact, ethics comes up in all of his works, but the book that best describes the ethical principles that you derive from the you know, black swan uh, framework of how reality works is the notion of skin in the game. And so the thinking goes something like this. You can take all the risks you want as long as you make sure that you're the one responsible for receiving the upside, but also more importantly, the downside of that risk. That what you want to avoid doing is um, essentially taking Having others risks. assume your risk? Yes, yes, especially non-voluntarily. In other words, you don't want to trick somebody into taking, you know, your downside while you retain the upside. But that would be, you know, kind of this a, a, yeah. a deceit in a sense. Would, the, would taxes be an example of that where you're using the collective money for different bets? Well, it was so he certainly would think so for things like bailouts. And in fact, that was kind of one of the, the main points that he talks about is, you know, it's unfair that people in, you know, these powerful positions made these, these big bets, essentially, the bets failed, and then the taxpayer bailed them out. Mm-hmm. And so what Nassim says is, hey, make all the bets you want, be as risky as you want, be as leveraged as you want, that's all fine. But if you fail, you need to be paying for your own debts. You need to be paying for your own mistakes. And um, I think that that framework makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think if you, I think if you want to take on a lot of risk with the belief that you may get some big reward, certainly get the big reward. That's perfectly fine too. But there has to be the symmetry. There has to be if you if you have the access to the upside, you need to have the responsibility for the downside. And um, and so this whole framework of skin in the game uh, is the it kind of grows out of of this idea with black swans that we really know very little about the world. It's extremely, everything is about, uh, about unknown risks and, and trying to, you know, pr- protect ourselves from the, the high, uh, the high impact of the improbable events. And basically, you know, the way that we navigate a world like that is when people choose to make risky bets, they need to be the ones that pay for that pay the price. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's and I, I think uh, I think that again I think that that framework makes a lot of a lot of sense. You know I think if uh, I go out and you know make a bunch of bad decisions in terms like let's say that I decide to use my college fund to go bet big in Vegas and I get wiped out, I don't I think that I I chose to do that. I chose to get wiped out, um, and uh, or chose chose to make that risk. And I think I should be the one to pay for the, to pay the price for that. Um, you know, it, it, it's it, uh, complications probably arise when you get into things like, you know, gambling addiction and that kind of thing. And I mean, it, it's you, 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 you do feel bad for people. I was reading this Reddit story where a uh, person was, uh, I mean, a true gambling addict and in the course of like an evening, just bet everything. And I don't know about you. I don't, I've, I've had maybe gamble like five times in my entire life. It's I don't called all in Jim. <laughs> yeah yeah he's like thank you i don't even have the terminology he went all in and uh you read a story like that and you just think 
God, that is a tough spot to be in. And um, it's, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, to, to me, that's really rough. And I, I feel bad for people like that. You know, I, it, it, that's a mindset that I just have no uh, connection to. I, I've never been somebody to get it to be a big thrill seeker. I don't know if you agree, like if, if you're the same way, but I just have never had that desire to be a thrill seeker, really. Well, a gambling, I, it's not more thrill. It's just, it's just a bad, bad odds for you, right? Like, right. Yeah. At least in the stock market or something, like it's a calculated bet or a gamble. But when it's like, yeah, pulling a, a lottery machine handle or even yeah. playing like blackjack, it's, it's just like flipping a coin, like a rigged coin. Yeah, a, a coin. Yeah, and, and, yeah, exactly. So, and you, so I, I don't know. I don't get I don't get a big thrill off of it because I'm too uh, blinded by that other side of it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm the exact same way. But to answer your your, your primary question, the, the ethics of Nassim's framework is that uh, that notion of skin in the game. That if you're if you're taking risks, you need to be the one to incur the downside and the ups. You know, the, the upside is what you're doing it for, but you need to be also responsible for the downside as well. And um, and again, the, the book, so that philosophy is called Skin in the Game. The book is also called, called Skin in the Game. And it's um, the uh, fourth book in his uh, Inchurdo series. The, the fifth one is kind of like a collection of aphorisms that he put together. But, but Skin in the Game is really, I think, more of like the, uh, the uh, capstone on this whole Inchurdo framework. So definitely a book worth checking out. Okay, wow. I'll have to get started reading on that. Reading yes, I think we know we are longer. I, I feel like we gave a, a list of essential authors at the very beginning, maybe like episode one or two that we really thought people should take time reading. We gave Scott Adams, Robert Cialdini, and definitely Nassim Taleb as well. And I, I still stand by all of those. I think yeah. that to have a, a good framework for the world, you need to read all of these authors um, and, and understand their ideas. And every day that goes by you need to see what's happening behind the curtain. Yes. Yes. And um, these authors give you really the, the skills, but really more the mindset of, of how to do that. You know, once you're exposed to the idea of the black swan, it, everything looks different. And um, it's, it, it's a, definitely a, a book worth checking out. So really, I, this whole series is a book, is a series worth checking out. Great. Yeah. Um... Well, now that I remember what I was going to say, we can go back to Joe's inbox. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so recently in some mail correspondence with a friend, I heard this, this topic that's kind of just stuck with me for like a really long time. And it's something that like, I've always experienced it, but I'd never had like really been able to articulate it or like understand or even observe it become aware of it like i've experienced it but i wasn't aware of it and it's this concept of uh like the novelty of certain items and like how when you get them and you interact with them like a, maybe a, a piece of clothing or something like you get a new jacket or you get a new whatever and then you go out with it and then while you're out you're just showered with praise like you're just it's a highly respected item out and you're it's made known to you by other people. But um, let's say that you try to wear that same sweater like a few months later or whatever, and it's just like totally not the same effect. It's even like a reverse effect. It's maybe even worse. Like best example is probably like a Halloween costume. If you wear like a Halloween costume one year, like 
if you were it again the next year, it's going to be like pretty weak compared to the first year. And it's going to be just off a little bit, you know, regardless of how good that first costume was. Right. Um, so it, that's one thing that's just been in the back of my mind. I've just been, it's been coming up over and over. You see it. Have you, have you, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. It's, um, yeah, so during the week, Joe and I, we both, you know, kind of, recommend books to each other and we kind of read our own books as well but i kind of the way that i we do this show is from a mine I, I bet joe probably does something similar because as i'm reading i kind of think oh yeah that'd be a good topic for the podcast and i make a little, little note to myself so on like wednesday this week i was i just finished rereading anti-fragile which is the third book in the seam to lev's interno series and in there he talks about neomania this obsession with new things and i wrote down I'm gonna talk about Neomania this week and let's see if Joe thinks about it. And what you're, what you're describing is this fascination with anything new mm-hmm. and at least part of what you're trying to say with anything new. And um, yeah, I mean, it's the, it's, it's absolutely true that we buy, we buy things and the, the feeling of, you know, good that we get from these items, even from ourselves, from other people is a uh, quickly deflating and um I, uh, it, it is interesting how quickly we just lose interest in either a Halloween costume, or I always think of like a new phone or something like, it's just, it's it, the, the effect is almost immediately gone when something new It's just when, when it, when it stops being new, there's not, hmm. um, it's always a big, a big letdown essentially that things don't feel better for longer. And, um, I just think it's funny that, uh, that while that's true, this is it's like, so basically Nassim is writing in his book is like, you know, this, this effect is true and this and that. And he's like, on the other hand, I just saw that the new MacBook has a better battery life. So I'm going to go buy the new MacBook. It's like making fun of himself. Like, even though he knows this is a phenomenon, he's still yeah, yeah. can't escape it. And, um, you know, I think that the, the, the uh, Halloween costume is a funny example too, because um, I would say that Halloween it seems like every year there's maybe like a handful of costumes that everyone's going to go as. And so to really have a, to really have a good costume almost means that you're going to be looking like a bunch of other people. Like the year that we all went as the Avengers, probably every other group of friends that had like five guys and also did the Avengers. So it's like a weird kind of like, in other words, it's like you're the, the the trend is almost guaranteed to be self-defeating because the trend makes it hard for it to be a novelty for very long because it invites people to to swarm in the in the yeah I, I think that the uniqueness is what makes a, a good costume right so that's like yeah. what's yeah. that's what people are going for i see what you're saying looking having a costume that no one else is wearing yeah there's some check in there to make sure that we're not overpopulated by avengers yeah yeah and uh, ours was people's willingness to paint their body green to be the Hulk. Not many people wanted to go all out for the Hulk. But yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but is that the is that the same type of novelty? Like, is that the same phenomenon that's get causes you to get a bunch of compliments one day wearing something? But no. Oh yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Is the it's, it's a little different. Yeah. No, I agree. It is different. Um, I'm trying to think of the one item that I got the most praise for or like acknowledgement for 
it was probably in, in college when I had a really big and obnoxious sideburns. That was probably the one thing that people yeah. would always point out, like, wow, look at that. Look at those chops. Look at those chops. It was a fun week. And then I was like, this is stupid. I got rid of it. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. What, when, you, when you think about this, what, what, what examples are, are going through your head when you think about this? Oh, it, dude, it, it happens like numerous times, especially if you're someone that like goes to like thrift shops for clothes because you're okay. like, always getting new clothes and it's sure and uh it's yeah i can see how people can grow addicted to something like that the whole thrifting process right because you're just you're tapping into this 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 dopamine source or whatever I, right um, okay i see what you're so, so you're you're looking at so but before i was confused i was thinking the feeling that you have getting something new but you're talking about well people acknowledging yeah yeah i see i see okay. but, but arguably the feeling that you have is what's causing the, the compliment. yeah I, I believe that argument yeah no i think that, that that's a fair point you know actually i take it back you know what item i had that other people had but for some reason really just never fully utilized i was one of the when i got my video ipod back in grade school whatever it was mm. i i like i got a couple mm. of shows on it and I remember someone came up to me and goes, you know, you're the first person that has a video iPod that actually has a video playing on it. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. We were just getting it and not really fully utilizing it. But, um, but I, I, never, I, remember, I remember feeling pretty good about that. I was like, yeah, I know. I'm just really, I'm on the cutting edge of uh, technology now with this uh, little device I have. And, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's some like addiction to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, that is interesting. I'll, I'll have to get that on my on my thought process as well. I, I always like where where Nassim goes with uh, neomania is that the future oftentimes looks less futuristic than we imagined it. That a lot of the high tech that we imagined existing never quite pans out. That a lot of the things that are that are cool that you imagine being cool when we're older have a hard time surviving in that uh in effect what you end up with is a future that looks a lot more like the present you know when people are thinking about the future and um there's all these like funny examples of like car designs back in the day you know like idea for a car look and it had all these like you know fancy gadgets in it and all these like buttons and everything else and it's just like you know none of that really panned out very much so look at tesla well now now yeah sure now yeah but um it's, um, it's, it's just funny to think, you know, it's the, the, what we, what we imagine to be futuristic is often in some way also complicated. And it's the complication that makes this, it's adaptation hard. And, um, you know, it's like, we still have books made of paper. We still write with, we're still talking about mechanical pencils and everything. It's not that the future never changes, but it's that, you know, things that, that work well have a way of, of keeping on working well, even as uh, other things come into the mix. It doesn't change um based on what we expect it to change to like it's right. not right. that. yeah so i mean yeah no it's, it's interesting effect i'll have to pay more attention to um the uh the item that i get it, it, it other items i get that i get the most the most praise for i i, I was never known for being a very sharp dresser so i i don't i i'm probably at disadvantage there but i'll have to find something else yeah, I mean, yeah, it's super common for like pieces of clothing or uh, maybe piercings, depending on what you're into, Jim. But well, like, so you below my belt lines, not in your damn business. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. I mean, we're, we're probably always trying 
to differentiate ourselves a little bit from the crowd, right? Where there's probably an incentive to just to stand out to, to some degree. And um, maybe right. I mean, people recognize- it's just like a common item, like it's just like a, a brand new, like nice jacket or something. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. wear it out and then it's, you, you get compliments and then you, yeah. you just stop getting compliments at some point. Yeah, no, I don't know. It's an interesting phenomenon. It's objectively the same jacket. Right. You're the same person as the beginning, but nobody cares. Something's different. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I like that one. That's a good, it's a good thought. I wonder what was the correspondence that led you to come up to, to think about this? Uh, what, what was the letter about? Was it like describing this phenomenon? Oh, well, the letter was about a lot. Like there's oh, a lot okay. of topics okay. like this one. Yeah. But this was just the, just the one that, that, that really stuck there you know yeah yeah no, I, I like that's something interesting i'll have to pay attention to the the immediate response to novelty that gradually dies off as like people get more used to whatever it is that you're doing differently yeah like how does it manifest and yeah like that i like that that's a good one i'll have to leave that one think about it for a little bit longer anything else in the uh, in the inbox uh, no, that's all I got. Those are, those are the heavy hitters. I mean, it's a, it's a better inbox than mine. Uh, well, this is interesting. So I... Jim's inbox. <laughs> Jim's inbox is mostly junk mail. And uh, a lot of me unsubscribing from things that I don't remember subscribing to in the, in the first place. Um, let's, let's do real quick. Let's do our social media shout outs real quick. And then let's do our album of the week from... Aretha Franklin. So real, real quick for our social media shots. So we have a couple for today. The uh, first I want to give is uh, a person named John Lyon and the uh, Twitter is John Lyon uh, Fine Art. That's kind of the, the, the heading. We'll put the actual handle below. Um, as you can guess from the name, he does a lot of artwork. He does, uh, I think, drawings and paintings and other stuff as well. Um, really good. I, I enjoy following him. It's always a nice kind of surprise when it's on your timeline and it's not somebody bitching about politics or something like that, but it's actually something fun to look at uh, as a nice, a nice change of pace. And um, he does, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, artwork in real time, or he does a set up motion and like draws real quick and the pictures at the end, uh, which I really like as well. But it just has a really neat take on things and does a lot of stuff that ties into pop culture as well. Um, we had a Star Wars painting up today that I really enjoyed and uh, a bunch of other stuff as well. If anybody follows our channel, I retweet his work frequently with the hashtag retweet art. Um, it's usually... Yeah, is, is, that the, is that the one that had the Dune themes? Well, so that, yes, but it was, so it was a Star Wars painting, but it reminded me a lot of Dune, this kind of the, the scenery that he did. And so I was curious if he did Dune work. I don't know if he responded to that yet, but, um, but just a lot of, a lot of great work. And uh, if anybody follows us on Twitter, you will see me retweet his work often uh, under the hashtag retweet art. And so, uh, but give him a follow. It's uh, like I said, it's a nice way to clean up your timeline a little bit, uh, something fun to look at. Our second shout out is a fan and friend of the show, Porter Allstadt, and we are giving him a shout out on here. Find him on Instagram. I know we'll put his handle below as well. Uh, Porter's a big fan of the show, gave us a lot of, a lot of nice feedback over the past few weeks. And so uh, Porter, we appreciate you watching. Hopefully you're seeing this episode, hopefully you're enjoying it. And um, anybody out listening, looking for somebody yeah. fun to follow on Instagram. And, and hopefully Porter's uh, studying up for a, a potential interview that's coming up here for him. That is true. We are continuing, of course, full pace with the GM search 
for the intramural softball team, Porter expressed a bit of an interest in that position. And uh, as always, we're uh, always open to interviews. And so we'll be looking at Porter applying for that position in the near future uh, as well. So those are our social media shout outs for this week. And Joe, I want to uh, transfer over to the album of the week. So last week's album of the week was by Aretha Franklin. And we have the write-up for that album that we want to share with you guys now. Another great write-up. Uh, from our official r r musical correspondent. Okay, so the album of the week for this week is Young, Gifted, and Black by Aretha Franklin. Review. This week's album is from the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, titled Young, Gifted, and Black. Released in 1972, Young, Gifted, and Black is Aretha's 18th studio album. I have this vivid memory of watching Moonlight in the theater, specifically the dinner scene in the third act. When Chiron walked into the dinner, the track One Step Ahead by Aretha is playing on the jukebox. I remember having two thoughts. The first being, isn't that the Miss Fat Booty sample? Followed by, I know virtually nothing about Aretha's songbook. What an absolute shame. So the next day I went out and bought Young, Gifted and Black. Side note, the track One Step Ahead is not featured on this album and was released as a single. Overall, Young, Gifted and Black is an album that is very easy to digest. Aretha's voice is flawless and her ability to mix the sounds of soul, gospel, rhythm and blues and funk so effortlessly is marvelous. Young, Gifted, and Black features four original tracks written by Aretha and eight covers from various artists such as The Beatles, Elton John, Miss Nina Simone, Otis Redding, and Burt Bacark. One of Aretha's original tracks, Daydreaming, in my opinion, is as close to perfection as a song could ever be. I would rank it near God Only Knows by The Beach Boys. Daydreaming is dripping with soul and perfectly captures the early feelings of infatuation or rather puppy love. The electric piano, flute, and acoustic guitar create an aura of floating. Then the soft increasing pitch of the piano on the coda allows the listener to transcend the terrestrial plane. Simply put, the track Daydreaming is magic. Realistically, this record can be enjoyed whenever you want. For the sake of offering a suggestion, I would recommend listening to Young, Gifted, and Black in the morning when you have the, when you have the day off from work. An album this solid is a great way to start the day. Another great write-up from the R&R correspondent. I have seen Moonlight. How about that? It was a great write-up. And... Let me, for uh, people who haven't seen Moonlight, definitely check out Moonlight. That was a great movie. I saw that movie, geez, probably six months ago, something like that. Watched it, uh, you know, here at the house. And uh, it was a great movie. I mean, moving, powerful, all that stuff. I mean, just a, a great film. And um, I, I did listen to, um, I think, the, the title song, Young, Gifted, and Black, uh, for this. And um, 
just a great song. I mean, obviously, of course, you know, she's a legend, so you, you expect that, but uh, definitely a great, uh, a great song, great album. And uh, as, as always, we'll be putting all of the information below. You'll find it. You know, we, we do, we, we try to find songs where people can uh, listen on YouTube, but of course we also include the Amazon link for anybody who wants to buy it. And then also if, if we can find it to the uh, Spotify link. So really whatever mode of listening you have available to you, hopefully you can find uh, these albums of the week and a, a listening format that is suitable for wherever or whenever you need to listen to these songs. But definitely do check them out and uh, another great pick and another great album for, uh, for yeah. this week. I, I just want to add that it's funny that this is the first time I'm reading this review, actually, um, that the suggested pairing of this album was during the day when you're starting your day when you don't have work. And that's, uh, that's exactly what I did yesterday <laughs> was that exact <laughs> recipe. And I, so therefore, I can attest that um, that is a perfect recommendation. And, and to remind the, uh, the uh, listeners, one of Joe's goals is to collect you know, enough of these uh, taste recommendations for the song to piece together a whole day, kind of an album of the week a day, whole life. <laughs> a whole life. So now you have the morning figured out. You have your morning song ready to go. Yeah, that's that's the goal. Like I was just walking around the streets of Portland, got a little bit of sun the other day and no work. I just walked around playing this and it was a it was an excellent day. You, you know what uh, thing I would have underestimated in my early 20s living in Tucson versus now being a little bit older and living in Houston, Texas, is the impact of weather and climate on attitude. When it is a sunny day, yeah. I am a different person than when it is cloudy. Uh, without well, Really, without exception. I mean, without exception, I am in a better mood. I'm nicer. I'm more excited for the day. I mean, it's just, it, it makes such a big difference, the uh, weather outside. And I would not have guessed, like 20 year old me, that's the thing that I would have like made fun of and been like, oh, that's just stupid and not real. And as I'm like 30 now, I'm like, definitely true. <laughs> so you're not 30, <laughs> 29, 29 folks, 20, 29. I'll be here forever. Uh, you know, I was just thinking about that just because again, I'm looking out right now the window. It's a great day. And, uh, makes a big difference and it's nice having those pairings uh you know for a good day because what do you get your morning off to the right start so that's right that's like today i had a little bit later of a start um so i, I threw on the miles davis like right right at the break of like 12 p.m or whatever and it, it got things moving it got things going it was, it was very pleasant a very pleasant again another great write-up from our correspondent and uh we'll get that posted and uh everybody can take a look at it but yeah check out the check out the album young gifted in black by aretha franklin uh a good a good album and also check out moonlight a great a great movie um very good i wanted to talk joe about a theme that came up today i'm not i'm sorry not not today it came up this week um and one of the people that we follow on, on Twitter is Paul Portesi, uh, who does all these great tweets of like, you know, different quotes and, you know, very, uh, very, very fun to read and kind of, you know, work through the puzzle. I mean, he writes in a very, you know, it's, it's, it's almost cryptic in a way. It's like, you have to read it and kind of think, you know, what, and kind of piece it together. And I, I, I like, I like people who tweet like that. It kind of reminds me of Naval a little bit, but um, he got me thinking about an idea this week that I think we could all do a better job of. And that is this idea of articulating the obvious. And I want to give an example of what I mean by articulating the obvious is the idea that 
just because we have an intuitive feel for why something works a certain way doesn't mean that we understand it. And the, the reason I was thinking about this is I was, I was thinking about something back in, in the days of engineering and, and uh, being in college. And I was thinking, you know, I, I understood how, how two things work. And I, I understood, you know, in a sense, how I could derive on paper, you know, why the number would be the right number. But I couldn't really tell you why. Now, I, I wonder how many other things in my life I have a, a familiarity with that as a result, I don't feel a, a sense of, you know, novelty or a sense of surprise when I encounter a problem that I could even solve, but that I wouldn't really understand, that I couldn't work back to some kind of basic principle to really explain it. And so that mm-hmm. kind of got me with this obsession this week of, you know, when you encounter a thing that seems obvious, challenge yourself to think, can I actually articulate this supposedly obvious phenomena? Can I actually explain it? And I think people, I myself, one of them, would be surprised that how many times something seems obvious, but upon closer inspection is actually not obvious at all. Yeah. It's funny that you made that comparison to Naval because Naval uh, also talks about this and having that rigid framework for your thoughts and in your understandings of things. And he referenced uh, Richard Feynman one, one time wrote some letter where he just started from nothing and he taught, you know, just basic addition, algebra, geometry. He, he broke, took it all the way from algebra to calculus in like one and a half pages, but it was completely intrinsically approved and, right. and founded from the bottom. So it's like he was able to just bridge those gaps. And that's how, that's how detailed his knowledge was. How like, how, I don't want to say rudimentary, but how, uh, how just simple. Fundamental. Uh, right fundamental it was fundamental first yeah. yeah first principles exactly yeah. Yeah. and just when you can do that for things like then that's really when you start leveling up naval does the same thing he he suggests reading like just the basics over and over like yeah. for instance uh origin of species by darwin like he says re- read that and get to know it and like understand physics understand science yeah and then uh, you're really setting yourself up well if you do that and that sounds like Paul's talking the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think absolutely that 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 mindset makes sense. And I think what is what is what is funny or what is humorous is that um, we will we, we will become so familiar with solving a problem that we forget why the solution works. And in some cases, that that's okay actually. And in some cases where things are really complicated, you just have heuristics. You just have rules of thumb. You, you only just got have, so much brain power. You, you only have so much brain power. And, and some things just aren't understood. I mean, some things are just really complicated. And, um, and so I, I don't want to give heuristics a bad name. I, you know, two engineers, we have a lot of respect for these. Um, but it's, it's important to know when you are using a heuristic. That would be the message here, is that if you are using a heuristic, in a sense, you're treating that almost like but when would you not be using a heuristic? Well, let me let me. I feel like that's that's like kind of a, yeah. What you can do. I, I think in real life, that's essentially what you're doing. I was thinking more in terms of like explanation. If you're if you ever find yourself trying to explain something really basic, and you 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 get to a point where 
you don't know something like for example if you're working your way through like a geometric proof or something you're proving you know that two triangles are similar or something like that um you want to be able to bring that down every time to the first principles of geometry um and in real life you're absolutely right i think you are essentially always in the realm of using heuristics and i think at, at that point what's really key is being honest about that and saying, oh, like, this is a heuristic. This is, we do this because we do it. We don't really know why. And being upfront about the lacking of knowledge. Yeah, um, it, it's this thing we don't understand. We, we're just yeah. going to call it gravity for now. And then yeah. we're going to move on. Move on to something else. And I, I think that that's, that that's totally fine and even necessary. Um, it's important to find yourself not trying to explain away your confusion is uh is i guess really the, the key takeaway when you articulate something obvious you will quickly find that there are things that you know but you're not sure why you know them and uh you know, probably a, a good example of that would uh you know anybody who's taken fluid mechanics would think of like the no slip condition for example you know that that's kind of a heuristic of sorts i mean there is underlying reason for why it is but they don't really get into that in the class you just know at the edge it's zero velocity, and then you solve from there. It's a boundary condition, and you move on. And I think uh, in in life, it, as we're always trying to work on more and more complicated things, we collect these heuristics that that are important and that are, are absolutely necessary. But um, I think it's important to always be honest with ourselves about our limits of, of knowledge, and to really challenge ourselves when we actually think we understand something. Work through it. Prove it to yourself. Don't assume that you know something. Just because you know the answer is mean you know why the answer is correct, and uh, you should, or you should know that you don't, and that becomes another type of knowledge that now you have at your disposal. Your your limits of what you of what you do and don't know. Nice. I like that one. What, what else you got on the doc on the docket? Well, on the, on the list. Yes. Yes. Um, let's see. Some a couple other good ones here. Um, I wanted to kind of a, a boring topic, but I thought it might be kind of fun to talk about. And it's the uh, topic of stockpiling. Um, one of the uh, key takeaways from Anti-Fragile, the, the book Anti-Fragile, is that when you face an unknown world, um, you want optionality. And the, the basis be, behind an option is that an option allows you to make a, a decision after some event has taken place, as opposed to having to predict what event will take place, in which case you're in the realm of prediction, which is hard to do because it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated world out there and as a result, hard to predict. And so one, one kind of simple thing that you can do if you wanna figure out how to increase optionality in life is uh, to do a little bit of stockpiling. It's like, um, it's like play action, right? Or, or the, the option, like an option pass. And Yes, exactly, yes, exactly like that. You know, why does the option you know, why is that a good, a good move in, in offense? And it's because, well, you don't have to know what the defense is going to do. You can call the play and then see what the defense does and then mm -hmm. make a decision after the fact. And so the, the, the whole idea with optionality is that it, it transports the decision-making moment until after the information is received. So it turns a prediction problem into a, you know, rational problem. And in the sense that if you're playing quarterback, Rather than guessing if they're going to blitz, you can call the play, see the blitz, and then go for the pass. I don't okay. play football. Hopefully, that's what you do when you play football. I guess I don't really know. But in, in, in any event, you don't have to predict. You can respond. And in general, you would rather respond than predict because you're it's it's because you can't predict the future. You can't predict the future. So 
It's a really great mindset. He goes into a lot of examples of this in Anti-Fragile. One easy one is the notion of like stockpiling. And uh, just to give an example of something that you could do for stockpiling would be something like not letting the your gas tank get super low. I don't know if I've done this before. I know people who do this way worse than I do, but like they only fill up when like the light goes on and it's like, ah, like it's just so much stress. Like, don't do that. Um, because if you, uh, if you're ever in a position where you're out of gas, then all the things you could do without gas are now no longer on the table. You have to go get it. Versus if you always have gas in your car, you have more options to, uh, to uh, pick from. And so, so just, that's just kind of a really simple example, but the idea with stockpiling is having a little bit more than you need so that you're never really pressed, that you always have the option of choosing between doing or not doing something. Um, but really the big takeaway would be the idea of option, trying to, trying to increase the optionality in your life uh, through various means. Stockpiling is one, is one way of doing that, but there are definitely others, but um, option, option, option. I like that. I like that gas, gas tank uh, metaphor that you made. Well, how many times, I mean, look, we'll, we've all done it. I mean, we've oh, all yeah. been in the car of like, oh, I'll get it tomorrow. I'll get it tomorrow. You know, even though you're driving by, you know, 10 stations on the way home, you could easily fill up. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Yeah. I always push it to the, to the yeah. light. Uh, yeah. My, my, my mom who has ran out of gas multiple times still mm-hmm. doesn't. It's like, well, you've even experienced why this isn't good options. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's a bad habit to fall into because you don't want to be stuck. You don't want to find yourself. You know, I live in Houston. So traffic in Houston can turn on a dime. And, uh, you know, you don't want to be on the highway stuck in traffic with your light on trying to do the bullshit. Oh, the light comes on when I have this many miles. So really, I'm fine. Uh Every day, you tell yourself this. Eventually, you will run out of gas. I promise you. Um, but uh, yeah, that is a good example. And an easy thing to do that increases a little bit of optionality in your life. Another one that I've been doing. Um, well, well, real quick. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, that's a bad habit for the gas pump. Uh, a good habit for the gas pump is yes. if you're serious about saving money, yeah. the best thing to do is is pre-plan how much you're going to spend each time, and then just spend the exact amount. Like, say, I'm going to get. $25 every time I fill up with gas and you just do that repeatedly. Nice. You're, you're effectively dollar cost averaging your gas into your car. And it's, it's, it's going to be the best deal that you can get. You're going to save the most money doing that. I like it. I like that. Um, 25 bucks of gas is, is going to be enough for yeah, because of the fluctuating prices. Yeah. And that. yeah. No, I like it. I like that. That one, that one's good. I um, was going to say, no, one thing that I do now when I go to the, um, uh, either to the grocery store or, you know, if I'm ever buying anything like deodorant, I never just buy one stick of deodorant. Like I, I, just buy, I just buy two, you know, and I, not every time, but usually I always buy two because I, if I ever am in a place where I need deodorant, I want to already have it and not need it and have to go buy it. So this things, little examples like that yeah. and like that just. But, but the deodorant, it's a, it's a slow coming disaster though. Like you can see it coming for a while. Like you, you start getting scraped. Yeah. You know, you start getting straight, but what I always fall into is the habit of thinking that I have an extra bar and then I go, oh, let me go grab one. And then there's just nothing there. I'm like, yeah, exactly. oh, what did I do? Yeah. Yeah. My, my armpit's bleeding from like rubbing myself with the plastic thing. I'm like, let me, let me, let me just grab another bar. Nothing. Then I got to sink into my wife's bathroom, use her little dove thing that doesn't even work. And I'm just putting on it's garbage. Oh, then you have to smell like a girl all day. Oh, it's so terrible. Terrible, terrible stuff. So I, I do that with like um, toothpaste, deodorant, the little mechanical, you know, the little, uh, 
electric toothbrush heads. I make sure I always have an extra one of those just in case, as I know one day it's going to come and I'm like, Oh, I have one. I have one. Nothing. I have nothing there. So redundant spare. I remember Adam Carolla would talk about that with like na- fingernail clippers. He's like, he's like, yeah, they're only 99 cents a piece. So just buy the, just buy the whole box next time you're there and you'll never have to worry about them again in your life. Never. I bought my, my brother makes fun of me. I not really makes, he praises me to this day. I bought a box of 60 big medium pins freshman year of college, a box of 60 for like probably five bucks. And that box carried me through four years of college. Yeah. It was just the perfect event, five bucks. And I was never out of a pin. I would just, if I ever wanted to put a pin in my back, I would just grab a handful, just dump a handful of pins in my, in, in my, in my, in my uh, backpack. I mean, I was just always with pins. I was just pulling them out like Boba Fett. I mean, it was ridiculous. So things like that, a little bit of optionality, a little bit of stockpiling goes a long way. And um, you never know. I mean, really the, the whole point of stockpiling is that you have a fixed price but if you're in a position where that payoff is really big for some reason, then you have a whole room, a lot, a lot of room for upside. And so, um, you know, that's kind of the idea with anti with uh, options in general is that you spend a little bit of money for the default price and hopefully either nothing really happens and you only lost a little bit of money. It's not that bad at a hit or you have a huge payout. And so with the, uh, with, with the pins, it was five bucks up front, minimum payout, a whole bunch of upside. If, um, I was ever uh, taking a test and my pan ran out of ink, boom, pull out that other pen. I was always ready to go. Yeah, Jim, but what if, what if you had gotten the 0.5 uh, millimeter pencils instead of the 0.7? That would, well, that would hurt your return ROI, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, I think with the 0.5, you're still okay because you're going to have other people with 0.5s. But if you want one of those like bizarro sizes, like the really big ones, like the 0.9, you're mm-hmm. done for it. 0.9 is just no, no, it's carrying 0.9. So yeah, I agree. You definitely want to, when, you, when you're buying supplies, buy supplies that are actually useful and not uh, something silly like an erasable pen. You don't need to be buying that. That's a waste of money. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, um, here, all right, here we go. A few more things on the list before we wrap up the, uh, the show today. We talked a lot about physical ergonomics. I know that you're big on ergonomics. You like the, the good posture and everything, all that stuff. I love a good ergo. I came across a phrase today that I really thought was interesting, which is uh, cognitive ergonomics. This idea that we create things that are beneficial to us mentally in, in, in the way that a, a chair is good posture. It's, you know, I haven't read too much about this, but from what I gather so far, it's kind of the idea of how do we present data and information to people in a way that is um, easily um, interacted with as opposed to like something really complicated like, and I always think of like Excel spreadsheets. Anybody who's seen a good Excel spreadsheet that's laid out well, easy to follow, easy to understand. I, I don't know. I don't know if this is actually what they're talking about, but I would imagine this is similar to what they mean when they talk about cognitive ergonomics. That was probably a good fit versus when you're having to like follow numbers all over and everything is the same font and there's no mm-hmm. coloring. And it's just a sea of numbers like the, the yeah. matrix raining down. Or like um, website design, like <laughs> how you navigate through websites. Yes. Yeah, website design. Oh, there are some dog shit websites out there. I always think, you know, back with... Um, Do you want to tell them a, a website out there that's not dog shit? Well, they want to check out our website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com, which is a very clean layout. And uh, all of our information up there, uh, not only do we include posts from here, but we also, uh, the, the YouTube links, but we also include 
Spotify and other podcast links. So, you know, however you want to listen to the show, find it on the website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. Also on that site, we have some writing pieces that Joe and I have put together over the uh, past six months that are on there as well. So be sure to check those out also. A lot of fun. And I, I'd say this site is pretty ergonomically. Uh, I think it is. Yes, I, I think it definitely is. I, um, what got me thinking about this is that we talk a lot about, you know, Robert Cialdini and his work and a lot of talk about how people uh, are easily confused and easily led into bad modes of thinking, whether it be from marketing or just from other kind of social effects that, you know, humans can fall prey to cognitive dissonance very easily. And I, I remember mentioning this earlier in an episode, but there, there are people who study ways of productively, positively taking advantage of some of these pre-built uh, networks in our head. And uh, an example of one that I, I couldn't give a great example of, but just kind of laying the table for this a little bit, is that humans I know are good at pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. And so if you can transform a problem into a way where we can make use of that circuitry in our head that it's easier for us to work with. But I'm really, I'm fascinated by the idea of rather than looking at, um, you know, whatever things we perceive of as limitations, figuring out if that is some kind of efficiency, how can we present data to us that takes advantage of that efficiency in order to make it not a hindrance, but actually a benefit that we have these, you know, the, the, these pre-structured uh, neural circuits. Yeah, the, the first thing that comes to mind is systems versus goals, right? Yeah. Like it's just using some innate piece of the brain that forces success. Like if you can turn yourself into a pattern machine doing the same thing over and over, eventually whatever you want is going to get done. It's going to get the time it needs. It's going to most importantly stay stay in your routine. Yes. You have a lot better chance at figuring it out, like you said. Yep. I think systems over goals is, is, is a great one. Um, you know, people that, you know, look at different ways of working, you know, is it better to give, you know, kind of a little bit of effort every day, or is it better to like do a lot of work at once and take a break and then do a lot of work at once and take a break, you know, there's different thinking on that. But uh, the one that I always like that's funny is, um, I, I mentioned this in our early episode as well, but tying it back in with this idea of, of, uh, of ergonomics is um, this idea that because humans are, are social creatures, we have this instinct to catch people who are cheating. Like we, we, we have a really good eye for cheating. And we're a bunch of tattletales. Yeah, exactly. We're a bunch of tattletales. And uh, basically what people have figured out is that if you can find ways of presenting data and information to people or problems to people in, a, in the framework of catching a cheater, that we, that we do better. We either solve the problem faster or that we get the right answer more often, that we, we are wired to think in terms of, of that kind of framework. And so I, things like that I really like because it's really common to find people that are just negative about, you know, quote, human nature and, and kind of down on, on humans. And I, I kind of get bothered by that. So it seems a little a little bit like, like loser think to me, kind of a little narrow-mindedness to me. What I'd rather the, the thought process is, well, this setting for humans didn't work well how can we find a better setting? How can we change either the way the data is presented or whether do we do the analysis to make the, the, the human mind better equipped for whatever job is at stake? I would rather that be experience. the conversation. Yes, exactly right. And um, th- 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 this is a big, a big uh, topic in people that do error analysis, the idea of, oh, it's a human error. And the idea is like, well, 
why was a human error? Why did the person make the mistake? Like, let's not stop looking there. Like, let, let's dig deeper. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the pilot did the wrong thing. Well, why did the pilot do the wrong thing? Let, let's dig a little bit deeper to figure out, you know, how we can make people next time better prepared or better equipped for whatever situation they're encountering. Yeah. We're not going to change the human anytime soon, you know? So let's figure out how to use what we got. You know, we have all these things that we've been, that we have evolved over millions of, well, yeah, I mean, millions of years in terms of the whole of, of living. So we got it. Let's figure out how to use it. I mean, it must be able to do something well. So let's, let's figure out how to use it to its, to its fullest advantage. So we use the, we use the after action review at work all the time which is what you just described or when okay. something goes wrong, like some tank pops open, spills everywhere, or some motor burns up and takes down the whole plant or something. You have to do a after action review, which is like a, a detailed report of what happened. And then the report asks questions like what you were saying, like, like what, what caused it? And then human, human, human cause is always like one of the top options and the top selections that the tree brings you down to. And it's like, okay, why did they, you know, why, what, what happened? Someone turned the wrong valve. Why did they turn the wrong valve? Right. <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, yeah. I don't know. It, it seems like it's being used more of a tool as documenting the offenders more than, right. uh, more than fixing the problem tool for fixing the problem. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, like that, that is kind of, that's a tough problem to solve. Like why, yeah. why did person X not turn valve Y? Yeah. Like sometimes, yeah, it might not be labeled properly, but there's always, there's always going to be a little bit of that human error in there. Uh, absolutely. And that's, I, 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 um, one of the most obscure books I've ever read, and it's because of Scott Adams that I read it, what is a book by, uh, I won't remember his name. I think his first name is Norman. I won't remember his last name, but the book is called Design of Everyday Things or something like that. And it, it's a book that just covers good design principles. And the, the whole point of the book is that to the best of our ability, we ought to make things that are not just easy to use, but are, are intuitive to use. That when we pick up a tool or some kind of item to use, we ought to really know what we're, well, how to use it right away. That we shouldn't really have to need, need to rely on a user manual or anything like that. Obviously that's a hard bar to reach in every setting, but as an ideal, it's interesting that there are, uh, design principles you can use to make things simpler. And I agree with you. I mean, there is going to be the element of, well, that person would just make a mistake. That's how the problem happened. But I do think as people, really all of us are probably designing something in our, in our lives or constructing something in our lives, but taking that extra step of trying to find and study good design principles. It's a really easy book to read. I recommend it. Uh, and, um, but it's just, it, it, it it's, the idea that you can actually take something that seems abstract like design and say, no, actually there are some things we can do that really do help. We can actually design things in a way that make them easier to use. It isn't just purely abstract, but there is a framework that we can use for making good things. Uh, I, think I think it's a powerful idea. That's the, that's the comparison that's being made between the Android and Apple products, right? Like right. Apple is priding themselves in the user, user experience and they typically have better hardware and they usually get it first. But uh, Samsung just, objectively i would argue has like kind of the second hand technology yeah and it, it's but there's always still those dedicated fans though even though it's clunkier you know what, yeah. what what's what's going on with that why are, why are you know that? there's a great interview with uh, peter teal uh he's talking with uh, somebody at the hoover institute and they're talking about 
branding and brand loyalty, which is what you're describing. Is this kind of this idea of like, oh, I'm a Samsung user, I use Samsung. And uh, Peter Thiel was like, you know, branding is real, it exists, but I can't explain it. I really don't know why people get attached to brands. And I, you know, and, and of course, if, 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 if Peter can't take it on, I know who would I be to take it on? But I mean, it is, it is funny that we just, these things become a part of our identity. I mean, think of like the Ford versus Chevy debate. I mean, this is, this is like, you know, there's like bloodlines over this. I mean, people with this, like the whole family is like, no, we drive Ford in this household. Or, no, we drive Chevy here. I mean, it just, uh, it just, I mean, it's, it's, it's a funny thing to identify with, but it, it definitely happens and we've all experienced it. And yeah. um, like a team. I don't know. It is like a team. It's, it's, it's just like a team. It's just like a team. But the, really, but back to the iPhone. I mean, look, how, if you gave anybody an iPhone, everybody would know how to use it. And first of all, there's only one button. So what, well, what, what, what could you do? You know, there's no way to do it wrong. I mean, that, and of course, I mean, Steve Jobs, he really prided himself on this, you know, form and function mindset that he brought to Apple, of course, and um, was legendary for that reason. But I mean, it's something that uh, we've all, we've all experienced bad design. The example in the book that he always gives is when you approach a door and you don't know if it's push or pull and you just crash into it like an idiot. And he's like, that's not your fault. Like, like unless the door you says a, you have to AB test your way through yeah, it. Everything is, you know, trial and error. And he says, you know, that's just the, the, the door was designed. The door was designed poorly. That's why you crash into it. And there's other examples of that as well. And, but I mean, I think, you know, that's, it's, it's something that we should all pay attention to when we encounter bad design, when we're doing it on our own, when we're making something, it, is what I'm doing easy to use? Is it is it enjoyable? Is it whatever? I mean, these are all these are all questions that we can ask ourselves and work through in a in a in a somewhat systematic fashion. And I, I you know that was one of those books that again was a really obscure topic. It's not the most obscure book that I've read, but it was pretty close. And uh, sure enough, really enjoyed it when I was I was like, you know what, that was a book that was worth reading. Yeah. I'm glad you summed it up for me so I don't have to read it now. <laughs> but I, I, I just think what the, what the principle is worth. The, the book actually gives like things you can do. I don't remember what they are. I have to go back and reread it. But um, it was uh, it was a good but nonetheless. And at least it got me thinking about that. That you know, when I make a mistake, rather than blame myself, I've got to be asking, why did I make the mistake? And mm-hmm. typically it will be because whatever I'm, in, whatever I'm um, involved with wasn't designed well from the, from the beginning. And um in any event, I have one more topic for you today. That's and, it. Uh, it. It ties in with nothing that we talked about yet, uh, which is always fun. But um, thinking about this today, we, we might have covered this before, but it's this idea of, uh, of time with regards to school and test taking versus time in the real life. I don't know about you, but I've never had like a bizarro deadline of like an hour to get the answer for something in real life. Whereas in school, that's like the whole framework. Every test is essentially, you know, this time test of getting to the right answer. And I would say that in real life, it's more about not so much the time that it takes, but the know-how, actually knowing how to solve the problem that you're encountering with. That it's more about, um, because on, on a test, it's usually pretty obvious what you're supposed to do. Like a word problems are usually set up in a way to be fairly you know, intuitive of what, of what you're trying to approach, but you're, you're, you're tested on, you know, how much can you finish in the allotted time period? In real life, I think it's more abstract. And usually what you're there to figure out is how to solve the problem. 
and then to solve it as well. In schooling, it's usually just the latter part. Um, and that time frame is always arbitrary and bizarre. But I wanted, I mean, do you agree with that assessment that this idea of like one hour time limit for a test is really not a good metric for what it's like to actually be out in the quote real world as opposed to in, in a classroom? Yeah, it's it's preparing for you for something different, yeah. right? Like if you're, it's preparing you for how to deal with anxiety. <laughs> controlled anxiety that's put on over and over again. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's like the real world. Uh, however, coincidentally, in my job, there is quite a bit of an emergency response to things because yeah. uh, water is hard to store if you don't have any tanks, right? So Stockpiling. Yeah. The faucet, when the faucet never turns off, you got to, you got to act quick if you're going to keep things yeah. moving. Yeah. Uh, th th I think that's just by coincidence that that's like that. Um, but that is like the test environment you were talking about. Sure. Um, sure. But yeah, I think it screws kids up more than anything. T the test anxiety, the everything yeah. like that. It's just yeah, non-representative of the real world. Probably the thing that's the most different is usually when you take a test, you're by yourself. Whereas in real life, you would actually would get in trouble <laughs> for not asking a question. You get in trouble for not asking how to do it. Uh, whereas on a test, you would get in trouble for cheating, which would be asking somebody for help, um, mm. which I always think is kind of funny too. But, um, but I was thinking about that today, you know, because I was thinking I was uh, doing some problem that I, I saw online. It was like a physics problem or an interval or something. And I kind of got obsessed a little bit. I was we're trying to work through it. And I'm thinking, I have no idea how to do this anymore. So I had to go back, look it all up again and figure it out. And I was thinking, you know, that's, really the skill that I have is knowing what to look up. Like I, if I really want to know how to do something, I can figure it out. Right. Like that's the skill right. that I have actually. It's not having the on the cuff answer, which is, you know, a silly idea to live up to. It's if I encounter any problem, I know how to go about solving it. Not, Oh, I already know the answer. It's five. It's you know that is very rare. It's more common to need to figure something out. And, um, as a result, it takes a little bit longer, but the uh, result is better. And I think that's that, that, that's a better picture of what the world is actually like. I, I like it. It, it. it cuts the stress involved and in, with associated with trying to remember things or pretending like yeah. you're going to remember everything. Like, no, like, yeah, remember everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like some of those popular equations, like, you're like, oh, I have to know that. I have to yeah. know this one. And no. it's like, yeah. yeah, you don't. You need, yeah. to need to know. I can just look up the quadratic formula if I really needed to. Yeah, no, that was, I just had this thing, this, um, one of the ideas I had, and I have my, my, my board of big ideas, you know, one of, one of, one of my, one of my quote big ideas was that this idea of this anxiety over forgotten knowledge, that as I got further away from school, I would just think of like, how much am I forgetting all of it? Like, and I would just think about it all the time. I was like, I'm just, as I'm moving through time, I'm just forgetting all of this stuff that I used to know. And, um, you know, all, all we can do is take sauce in the fact that if you learned it once, you can learn it again. I think, and, yeah, uh, there's that. I think you also gain the familiarity with working with problems like that with those types of variables and those types of like ways of solution. Like math is kind of, yeah, it, it, it's, it's teaching you a certain way of doing things and thinking about things that can be replicated for different problems or other situations. Yes. I, that's the utility that you get from, from school. Or at least that's what I tell myself. No, I, I think that that's a good assessment. I um, I like that. I like I like at the beginning you were talking about the. Uh, I, I'm sorry for my 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 slow uptake on the uh, phenomena 
you were describing at the beginning about people's response to your new clothes. But I think now I kind of get what you're talking about. I'm going to pay more attention to that. And maybe next week I'll see if I have any examples to share with the audience when, uh, when that time comes. All right, we'll put it on the agenda. Yeah, put it on the agenda. But um, I was just went through that. That was all of my stuff for the list. I, did you have anything else you wanted to cover for today? Or? Oh, that's a good list. All right. Very good. Well, we are uh, people who saw our episode a few episodes ago with uh, Francisco out of, out of San Francisco with neuroscience. We are actually in the process of getting a few more neuroscientists lined up to come on the show. We're uh, exploring a little bit what the idea of doing some more episodic structure with, uh, with the, with this show and uh, staying with themes longer over multiple episodes. So we're going to have a few, a few episodes dedicated to neuroscience coming up in the near future. That'll be a lot of fun. So check that out as well. And if yeah. you have any suggestions for episodes, the, the thread line, like just to yeah. add into there, um, we, we are, we do have some big problems we're trying to solve. We're trying to solve our lack of this GM for the softball team. Yes. And we're also trying to solve neuroscience as well. Yes. Consciousness so and softball. And uh, the world needs all the help it can get on, on those two fronts. And, uh, and we're here to help. And we're, and we're here to help free, free for now, free of charge. Uh, <laughs> I, Yes. So check that out. And if you have any ideas for, for, for longer form, if you have, if you've heard a theme on the show that you want us to spend more time with, tell us below. We always read the comments. Uh, let us know below. Um, and also I, I didn't give this out last time, but let me of course give out our social media, which is always important to follow us on there as well. Our Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric. Uh, follow us also on our Instagram, which is also roses underscore rhetoric. And then follow Joe as well, uh, which is uh, Twitter is at Jose four underscores Cuervo. And then Instagram is, I think, the same thing, right, Joe? Jose four underscores Cuervo as well. Yep. Check out Joe there as well. Follow us on the platforms. Like, share, retweet, re-like, repost, re-whatever. Do it all, folks. It all, it all helps the show. And as always, give us your feedback below as well. And check the video for links to Album of the Week and websites, everything else I just mentioned also. So... Episode 27 is in the bag. So until next time, everybody, I am Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joseph Stanford saying ciao.